Good morning, church family. So good to see you here this morning. It seems like we work on this. As you're turning to Matthew 5. Matthew 5, 21 through 26. As you're turning there, think of the wonder that we just saying what love could remember no wrongs I have done omniscient all knowing he counts not their sum thrown into a sea without bottom or shore my sins they are many his mercy is more Can you imagine a person singing such words joyfully and publicly, yet all the while harboring hateful thoughts toward another person made in the image of God? Just try to picture that. I mean, try to imagine a man glad to sing of mercy applied to himself from heaven and yet unwilling to let any of that mercy spill onto a certain someone in his life. Imagine a woman glad to sing of divine love, lavished on her, yet so quick to remember wrongs, and just as quick to withhold love toward the one who wrongs her. The thing of it is, is we can imagine such things That's why it got really quiet. We don't have to imagine. We we know such things by experience, don't we? We don't have to imagine a visceral anger toward another person. We don't have to imagine a, a kind of a gut level disdain for another person. We know it by experience. And this morning... The scriptures encourage us, challenge us not to imagine anything, but to believe, to believe that the kingdom of heaven breaking into our lives in the gospel frees us to live in a manner completely opposite our base instincts. Heaven's king, Jesus, has has come to this earth and praise God, he has done everything necessary to save his people from their sins. Are you glad for this? Everything necessary to redeem his people from their bondage to Satan and sin and hell has been accomplished in Christ. And having saved us from sin's hell, the king pours heaven's grace and mercy into our lives. How much? So much that it spills out onto other people. By his indwelling spirit, the spirit of Christ, the king brings heaven's heart to this earth through his redeemed people. Remember from last week, the prophet said, or God said through the prophet Ezekiel, I I will sanctify, I will vindicate my holy name among the nations when my name is honored by you, my people. 
It is to kingdom people then, born of the spirit of God people, that Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. You, you are the light of the world. And so this morning we consider salt and light applied to a very angry world. Have you noticed how mad the world is? Everybody's upset. Everybody's mad, angry. As salt prevents rot, so God's people prevent the spread of anger in an angry world, beginning with their own relationships. As light dispels darkness, so Jesus' followers love and do actual good to people, even their enemies, rather than live in open malice or quiet contempt or just ongoing indifference toward other image bearers of God. Now, I have to tell you this. I read ahead. This is all very practical to us. Life in the kingdom demands that base passions be subdued by our king. I don't want you to take my word for it. Let's just read the words of our king Jesus, Matthew 5, 21. You there? You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you, that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Rakah, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, You fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Agree with your adversary quickly while you are on the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge, the judge hand you over to the officer, and you be thrown into prison. Assuredly, I say to you, you will by no means get out of there till you have paid the last penny. Before we um, just really jump into this Uh, first um, example of Jesus expositing the moral law. I want to just mention three, um, I guess, speed bumps that we we run into as we work our way through the rest of Matthew 5. And I won't repeat them all in subsequent messages, but I, I want us to just see them now so that we rightly understand what our Savior is teaching us. Speed bump number one here, remember that King Jesus is presenting to his subjects, his redeemed people, life in the kingdom. That This is what it is to be one of the citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And he's showing us that the gospel way is a narrow way. Do you remember that from last week? Anybody? A couple of you? More in the first service remembered that. And so we were able to move on a lot quicker. All right. The Christian pictures herself walking down this narrow gospel way. It's the way of grace. We are saved by grace through faith in the work of Christ for us. Christ is our security. Christ is our solid rock upon which we stand. 
And this gospel way uh, takes us on this narrow way, steering us clear of, of two pitfalls on either side. The first one I mentioned last week was legalism. Some of you know a legalist really well. The other one was license, wasn't it? Or antinomianism, against lawism. So we cannot take this teaching and assume that Jesus is saying, if you're ever angry at someone, you're not saved or you lose your salvation. That's not what this is about, okay? We, we could never obey fully God's moral law. How many of you know only Jesus did that? And Jesus obeyed God's moral law from the heart, not just in appearance, in reality. The true gospel is, is not salvation by works, but, but, but of grace through faith in him. And so we don't want to look at this passage legalistically. We also don't want to look at this passage licentiously. And by that I mean we're grace people I'm so grateful that Jesus fulfilled the law for me. Therefore, I have no need whatsoever for the moral law of God. In fact, even when I hear this kind of stuff, I immediately assume that's legalism. How many of you know that's wrong? The moral law for God's people is a blueprint for living. It's the best life that God has for his people. And it's the way in which God promises to use his people as salt and light in the world. And so saving grace sets the Christian on this, this narrow way of imparted holiness. How many of you know God has pledged himself to make you who are followers of Jesus holy? Not people who look holy on Sunday. Not people who, who learn a vocabulary and kind of sound holy at certain times. But from the inside out, holy people. This, this is the sanctifying work of the Spirit of God. And so we must look at this teaching as those who've been delivered from the law's condemnation and set free to live out its counsel toward Christ-likeness. Now that was just the first speed bump, but it is a big one. And it's led to all sorts of misapplication of the Sermon on the Mount. We'll come back to that later. The law for the believer is God's blueprint for life. Remember, Matthew has said to us in his gospel, the coming of King Jesus, uh, the kingdom of heaven is at hand because the king is here, and the coming of Christ is nothing less than a, a new beginning for God's world and God's people. It requires a new exodus, and, and in the exodus, God says to his people, hey, I've got you out of Egypt, now I'm going to get Egypt out of you. And like I said, I read ahead, this is all about getting Egypt out of you and out of me. The sinful anger that we so often have toward others must be dealt with God's way. Here's another way to consider this. Jesus has just finished saying to his people in verse 20 of Matthew 5, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus' first listeners might have wondered, as some of us maybe wonder today, how could your righteousness possibly exceed that of the professional religious guys? 
I mean, everybody who saw the Pharisee says, there goes one of the God people, right? They're all churchy. They're just oozing churchiness. And Jesus will point out in this very Sermon on the Mount that the Pharisees' supposed righteousness was all external. It was a feigned righteousness. It was all smoke and mirrors, what people could see. In fact, they added to God's law so much of their own ideas to enable themselves to look like they could fulfill the law of God on their own. And Jesus will say in this Sermon on the Mount, listen, the the moral law is, is a matter of the heart. It always has been. To be a kingdom person then, to, to live on the narrow way, the gospel way, the way in which uh, passions are placed under the rule of the king, even passions like anger. And that's an intense one, isn't it? So here's a takeaway. God's people submit their thoughts and words toward other people to the scrutiny of King Jesus. You and I are meant to take what we've just read and allow the Holy Spirit get out of his way and accept the reality that we're meant to be thinking about real and actual relationships now, not somebody else's, ours. And that's only the second speed bump, so technically the sermon has not started, okay? (laughs) Third speed bump. We'll notice as we work through the rest of Matthew 5, Jesus is not teaching against the law. You will hear people still today say, hey, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus made the law even more difficult. That is not so at all. Or they will say, hey, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus made it so we don't have to care about that law in Exodus 20. That is also not so. Look at verse 25. You have heard that it was said to those of old. So Jesus is correcting the common teaching the erroneous teaching that God's people had been hearing about the moral law. Verse 26, but I say to you, I know you've been taught this about murder and anger. I know you've been taught this about adultery, marriage, your word, uh, retaliation, these types of things. But I say to you, in fact, this part of the Sermon on the Mount It is sometimes referred to as the six antitheses because Jesus is going to give us six examples from the law of wrong understanding and what it looks like for God's people to actually follow his blueprint for living. So let's just look at the first one. And as I mentioned earlier, this is the start of the sermon, okay? This first antithesis then is to do with the sixth commandment. You shall not murder. That's plain enough. You shall not kill. Um, Look at Matthew 5.21 again. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said to those of old. Okay, I know what you've heard about this. You shall not murder. And whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Rakah, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. This sounds fairly serious, doesn't it? Doesn't it? It is. Jesus' first listeners didn't have Bibles to carry around like we do. 
But they had the moral law committed to memory. They didn't have to look it up. And they had bouncing around in their heads the oral traditions of their elders. And as it turns out, so many of those traditions had led them into wrong thinking about the law of God. They had been rightly taught that God's law forbids murder. And so we don't want to just blow past that. Murder, abortion, euthanasia, suicide, any taking of life given by God is an offense to God. Every man and woman on this planet is an image bearer of God. And and yet the heart of God in the sixth commandment is not simply to avoid willfully taking human life outwardly. But that was what the Pharisees did with it. Well, at least we didn't kill anybody, so we're good. As if that satisfied the sixth commandment. And Jesus is telling his people, listen, this is a matter of, of the heart. Do you have a murderous heart? toward another person? God's law changes the way his people think before it changes what his people do. But this is to do with the heart, not just the actions. And so kingdom people are not those, by God's design, who are satisfied that they've managed to go through life simply without killing another person. It's to do with the heart. And anger, says Jesus, is the root sin behind murder. In fact, to devalue any life of any person offends God. Why? Again, because all people are God's image bearers. And yes, the curse of sin has badly distorted the reflection of God in man. We understand that. But God's design is that life be honored that his image bearers be honored. And so to devalue, even with angry words, another person made in God's image is to burn God in effigy. And the reality of this, friends, is that every one of us has struck the match. There's a reason there's a weightiness to this. And some of you are thinking, man, I didn't know it would be this this Sunday. We should feel a weightiness to this. The gospel way, the narrow way, the way of life in the kingdom does not emphasize God's law outwardly without dealing with inward holiness. So the Pharisees then were dead wrong, no pun intended, when it it came to embracing the teaching of the heart behind the law of God. And notice how Jesus gets right to the root of it. He says, I say to you, I know what you've been taught, But I say to you, whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. The phrase without a cause is not in some of your Bibles. Go ahead and write that in there off to the side. It it belongs in there. Uh, There's a discrepancy in some of the the manuscripts that give us the, the English translations of our Bibles. But context here, as well as the rest of Scripture, Uh, shows us that Jesus is not talking about righteous indignation. Anger at sin. He's talking about anger directed at people. Righteous anger is an anger that's rooted in love for God, right? The last time you got really angry, did it have to do with love for God? 
Some of you might be able to say yes. An awful lot of us would have to admit no. It had more to do with love for self. Or we might have to admit that even when I have experienced righteous indignation, it doesn't take very long for it to mutate into something other than that. What began as righteous anger turns into selfish anger, anger that is displeasing to God because it burns against another image bearer of God. It's it's warped into something that's displeasing to God. And I, and I got to tell you, friends, this is incredibly practical for us. Some of you have bumper stickers you need to get off of your cars. And that's not a joke. Some of you have Facebook posts that you need to delete and never bring back. Why? Because the wrath of man never accomplishes the righteousness of God. And we're called to be salt in a world that is rotten with ticked off people. We're called to be light in a world that is so dark with hateful anger toward other image bearers. Sinful anger offends God's holiness just as murder offends his holiness. And and let me just ask you um, one favor. Please don't leave here today and say that the pastor said to be angry is the same as killing somebody. I'm not saying that. Jesus isn't saying that. Um, in case you're curious, I would rather you be mad at me than kill me, okay? He's, he's, not, he's not saying, I mean, I'd prefer neither, but Jesus is not saying they're the same thing. He's saying that sinful anger is an offense to the holiness of God, just as murder is an offense to the holiness of God. And then he begins to, are you still listening? Jesus begins to fine-tune our understanding of the heart, then, behind this sixth commandment. He gives three parables, okay? First, the example of our words. Whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council, but whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hell fire. The, the word raka basically means worthless person. It's, it's a value judgment of another human being. And it's malicious. It's devaluing. Fool, as well, is a, is a judgment when used in the, in the context Jesus' example points to. It's used maliciously. So in the sixth commandment, God's law forbids the the devaluing of anybody who is an image bearer, and that turns out anybody, because all people are image bearers of God. You know, it's been said that, um, let's just come up for air for a minute. Um, It's been said that the human heart has a billboard. Have you heard this one before? The nature of our hearts is revealed in the words we speak about other people, particularly in private, especially toward people who've irritated or hurt us in some way. Real hurt, even imagined hurt. And the word hell in verse 22 is the Greek word Gehenna, 
And it refers to a place, the, the Valley of Hinnon, south of the city of Jerusalem, just outside the, the city gate. And that was where pagan deities were worshipped. Um, think back to your readings in the Old Testament of Ahaz and Manasseh. Child, children were sacrificed to false gods. If you can uh, just imagine the horror of a culture that kills its babies. Gehenna, the place, became synonymous with something despicable, something hellish, the most disgusting thing that you could think of. And the Valley of Hinnom in Jesus' day was um, where things like garbage and, and animal corpses and even the, the corpses of, of heinous criminals were burned. And, and the fire was kept burning. Are you disgusted yet? That's the point. The fire was kept burning constantly to keep pestilence away. In other words, Jesus' listeners couldn't think of a more disgusting thing than what he had just said about angry thoughts and angry words that are an offense to God. The prophet Jeremiah associated the place name Hinnom with God's divine wrath eschatological judgment, you know, judgment at the end of the age. It's almost as if these, these hurtful, malicious words are, are on their way to hell and you're not to take them with you as you're journeying this narrow gospel way as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Hurtful, malicious words about other image bearers come from hellish hearts, in other words, not holy hearts. I wonder how many of us this morning have a parcel or two we've been carrying around, a parcel packed with hard attitudes destined for hell. I mean, we're not destined there, but, but, but we haven't seen yet the disconnect of being a pilgrim on his way to the New Jerusalem while we're carrying this stuff around. Jesus wants us to see the disconnect. And this goes straight to our hearts, doesn't it? Doesn't it? Am I the only one in this room who knows what it is to harbor angry thoughts about another person? I'm not making eye contact. (laughs) Of course not. Of course not. We lose our temper. We hold grudges. We gossip. Uh, We harbor spite, jealousy. Uh, Often our words, usually in private, betray hellish hearts. In fact, even the English language has a term for this, character assassination. Have you heard that? Even the culture understands this whole sticks or stones may break my bones, but words may never hurt me. That's a lie. Nobody believes that. I don't know if you, um, you still with me? I don't know if you know um, the, the, this lady, Carla Pepperzak. Have you read about her? She, she lives in Spokane. Or she, she was in Spokane recently. I don't know where she lives. But they named a middle school in Spokane after her. She's a Holocaust survivor. Um, 98, 99 years old, something like that. They named this middle school after Carla Pepperzak. Um, and they did an interview with her um, a couple of days ago. And she said about the new school, the kids will move into it next fall. She said, I hope the new school will not have hatred. 
And this really jumped out at me. Here's a Holocaust survivor who arguably knows more about human hatred than most people in this room, at least in terms of being a victim. I don't know what's going on in her heart. Um, and, and yet she says with respect to this middle school, I sure, I sure hope it's not a place of hatred. And what, what does she mean by that? That, that? The root of something as horrifying as the Holocaust is simply unrighteous anger. Anger that is an offense to God. And so if, if you're a thinking Christian, are you a thinking Christian? Or are you just trying to get through this thing? If you're a thinking Christian, and by that I mean your conscience is working, um, you have to be wondering by now, what, what am I to do about this? Because I find that I am a person who at times is faced with the temptation to let my thoughts go in this direction. And horror of horrors, I'm being serious, this is not a joke, sometimes my words will betray that. Particularly my words in private. Again, not making eye contact. And I, and I don't mind saying that because I suspect I'm not the only one in the room. So, so, so the issue is not, is it so? But what in the world are we to do about it? Well, I want us to notice Jesus gives us a way, a gospel way through this. Look at verse 23. He says, Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you. Okay, just stop there for just a minute. The first encouragement is that Jesus acknowledges his people struggle with this. Okay? This is the raw honesty of Scripture. In a fallen world, people still being sanctified, we're not there yet. This is going to happen. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. <laughs> Notice the word remember. Remember, the, the assumption is that you, as a saved person, have a divinely activated conscience, meaning it now works the way God intended for your conscience to work. The Spirit of God living within you, the Holy Spirit, nothing hellish, pleases Him. He's come to tell you that, that a relationship like the one described in verse 23 is, is out of step with God's blueprint for human relationships. And so it would be a perfectly normal thing among a group of Christians to have really specific stuff bouncing around in our heads right now. That's a good thing. This is a gift from God. And the Holy Spirit is saying to us that that's not the narrow way. This is incongruent with life in the kingdom it may be that you did nothing wrong to another. Jesus acknowledges that. But perhaps another feels you did. There's a funk in the relationship. I think that's the theological term for it. And it's just not been dealt with. That's the thing. What are you to do? Well, first of all, notice that Jesus says, you must act. Who's you? The person you see in the mirror when you're looking in it by yourself. You. You must act. Don't, don't wait for the other party to act. This isn't just between you and that other person. This is between you and God. Says who? Says Jesus. God does not accept worship from his people when they harbor angry, murderous hearts. 
And you might personalize that. God does not accept worship from me when I bear a grudge against another. Or I know another bears a grudge against me and I'm just just letting it go. I'm not going to deal with it. So then what do I do? Well, well, my conscience (laughs) worked as design um, and Jesus says, own the offense, right? Just, Just own it. When? Immediately. Immediately. This isn't one of those, boy, when I retire, God's going to be so happy with what I do with my life kind of deals, right? Jesus is saying, immediately deal with this. Don't ignore it. Don't explain it away. Uh, Don't defend it or justify it. Don't excuse it. All of those things I have done myself, that's where I got that list. Just own your sinful anger or another's grudge. Remember the verse, verses we read when we began this morning, Ephesians 4.26, be angry and do not sin. Anger itself is not right or wrong. There is such a thing as righteous indignation. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. The scriptures warn us in so many ways Allowing anger to fester and simmer leads straight into a pit of hellish bitterness that not only displeases God, but hinders us tremendously. I'm guessing in, in, in a room you know, with this many people in it, there are dozens of us who know what it looks like for someone to be imprisoned by their own bitterness and anger. What a destructive thing that is. James Boyce in in his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount says this. He says, we are to admit our anger, acknowledging our guilt, and we are to do this as the first step in our cure. And you might think, well, even if I'm sitting in church on the Lord's day and, and and I feel the burden of this, yeah, even then, You know, what's interesting to me is that Jesus is preaching in a setting in northern Israel. So he's preaching to Galileans who would have thought about, wait a minute, gift, altar, that's Jerusalem. That's a long walk. There's no bus service, right? So it took tremendous effort to get from Galilee to Jerusalem. Is King Jesus saying that after you've gone through all of that fuss and planning and deliberateness to get to Jerusalem and you get to that time when you're going to give to the Lord and you realize right then, boy, Fred's got a beef with me. Are there any Fred's here today? You always try, you always try to pick one of those. Um, and, and, and he, like, what's Barney to do if he, if he realizes right at that point that Fred has something against him? Or maybe he's offended his brother, right? And it doesn't matter whether anybody else in the town of Bedrock knows about it or not. His conscience works like it's supposed to now. What's he supposed to do? Well, Jesus says, hey, you, you better head back to Galilee. You've got to find Fred. And do what makes what you can to make this right. This isn't just between you and Fred. It's between you and God. And you say, well, that, 
That would be embarrassing, wouldn't it? Jesus seems to be saying to us this morning, listen, never mind the court of public opinion. We worry about that court way too much. What will people think? You can't get away from the court of conscience, can you? And that is a gift from God to his people, enabling us to know when we've stopped using his blueprint for life. I wonder, um, you're still listening. I wonder before next Lord's Day, when we take communion to celebrate um, the Lord reconciling us to himself, how many of us need to prayerfully reach out to another in these next few days? Whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. You see, to be a person who believes the word of God, you have to wonder how many illnesses today get explained away or medicated away when the root cause is bitterness or God's discipline for sinful anger. In fact, God says elsewhere in his word, let's just say you're a married person, hypothetically, and um, God says to us, we who are married, he says, look, if if there's discord in the relationship and you own it, I don't want to hear from you until you've dealt with that. Husbands likewise dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. And if if you're not the husband, you're the wife, and you you feel, you know, sort of let off the hook here, let me just remind you that 1 Peter 3, 1 through 6, is directed at the wives. God takes this stuff seriously. Why? Because we are his representative people. We're his witness people in the world. Our marriages are meant to be the fragrance of the gospel of Jesus Christ in a world that doesn't understand what marriage is at all, let alone love. Fractured relationships are a given in this fallen world. Jesus is acknowledging that. Christians function as salt and light by initiating reconciliation in strange relationships. Think think of what a contrast this is with the world that we live in. This world is just rotten with scorekeepers. Do you know any scorekeepers? Don't look around, right? (laughs) We know what that means. Always remembering the wrongs against them. When it happened, what was said, what it felt like. And you can run around today and find a counselor who will say, you know what you need to do? You need to get in touch with yourself and you need to remember all of the different horrible things that have happened to you in your life. And let me just tell you, this is extra. The last person you need to get in touch with is yourself. You and I, we want to stay in touch with the Spirit of God. 
And God, the Holy Spirit, will lead us to take ourselves down this road of allowing him to function as salt in the earth. Stop the decay in this angry world. We live in a world dark with vengeance and retribution. He cut me off. I'm going to cut him off in traffic. She didn't text me for two days. I'll wait three to text her back. I mean, how petty is that, right? You are the light of the world, Jesus says. Shine. How this world needs salt and light from our Lord's people. What a a vindication of God's holy name there is when his people walking in the spirit do not indulge sinful anger toward one another. Is that not how God has regarded us? His just wrath burns against all sin, our sin. And God in his great mercy initiated reconciliation with us, did he not? God the Son left his heaven and and was born into this smelly, messed up world of ours. He will save his people from their sins. He's come. The king has come. And he's accomplished this redemptive mission. What love could remember no wrongs we have done? Omniscient, all-knowing. He counts not their sum. Thrown into a sea without bottom or shore. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Hallelujah. Notice just one last practical example here, another parable, verses 25 and 26. And this is how we'll end this thing. Agree with your adversary quickly while you are on the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge. The judge hand you over to the officer and you be thrown into prison. Assuredly, I say to you, you will by no means get out of there till you have paid the last penny. So here is this parable, and remember with a parable, it's a, it's a, it's a story, um, a real-life example that's meant to teach a spiritual point. And so we don't look at a parable like this and decide, well, you know, what, what does it mean to be, what, what's the prison and, and what's the penny and all of that sort of thing. It, it's got one point, right? And, he, and here is an acknowledgement that disagreements that happen, um, the disagreement itself is not the issue, it's what you do with it. It's what I do with it. The king is warning his people that these these disagreements, these fights that spring up out of sinful anger have earthly consequences. Not just eternal consequences, but but in the here and now. I, I am guessing that there are many here who know by experience what happens in a family Do you care if this is practical for a minute? What happens in a family when there is sinful anger that just never gets dealt with? Everybody just has to pretend that that's not the deal. Don't harbor the proud, unbending heart of one who keeps elevating the disagreement, who who refuses to yield, who who bears the, the lasting grudge 
seek to come to a peaceable agreement, if at all possible. Romans 12 says this, Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. I think I've mentioned to you guys before that years ago, this was one of my favorite passages um, about relationships, but for all the wrong reasons. Because I, I, I misread Romans 12 to be saying to me, well, there's my out. It's just not possible to be at peace with Barney. Have you met Barney? I mean, the, right? What is God saying to his kids? Much depends on you to be at peace with others. Neglected grievances have lasting consequences. And so the king's people, salt and light people, desire reconciliation, live toward reconciliation. I wonder, I wonder how many of us know by experience, know the difference from what happens when we, by God's grace, immediately deal with, with a disruption in a relationship as opposed to letting a whole bunch of time go by. Anybody want to say amen to that? Let's say you wait a couple of weeks, a couple of months, a couple of years, maybe 20 years. It becomes impossible, seemingly impossible. How is it possible? Think of this. Jesus, in his humanity only thought and displayed anger righteously. Jesus was angry at times, wasn't he? And he was always and is always right to be angry. He's not dealing with that kind of anger though in this teaching. But how did he do that? You say, well, he's God. He is. In his humanity, Jesus did that in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so you and I who walk the narrow way, the gospel way, do so not alone and not just in the company of other followers. We do that in the company of Christ's constant companion, the Holy Spirit, lives within us. And you see, this blueprint is impossible to live in our own strength. But we don't journey in our own strength, do we? We journey under the influence of the Spirit of God. Let me just end with this. Amy Carmichael, uh, the Irish um, Christian missionary to India, wrote quite a few books, three dozen books, I think. She served 55 years in India, never had a furlough, and still managed to write 30-some-odd books. Anyway, one book is called If, If. And it's a short work in which she considers her own understanding of Christ's love by evaluating her own relationships. Just think about that. My understanding of the love of God for me played out in my relationships. That's what Amy Carmichael did. She wrote this book. And, and the idea is that those washed by the blood of the Lamb are liberated, <laughs> freed uh, to live out Christ's love in their relationships, right? Right? Here's what she said. 
She said, if I can easily discuss the shortcomings and the sins of any, if I can speak in a casual way, even of a child's misdoings, then I know nothing of Calvary love. If I take offense easily, if I am content to continue in a cool unfriendliness, though friendship be possible, then I know nothing of Calvary love. If I enjoy a joke at the expense of another, if I can in any way slight another in conversation or even in thought, then I know nothing of Calvary love. That's as far as I got. Friends, the Lord who is speaking to our consciences today is glad to impart grace, strength, to walk this narrow gospel way. The number of people in this room right now would make a tremendous impact in this community as salt and light as we simply follow our king in this area of relating to other people the kingdom way. Let's trust the Lord to give us grace to do that very thing. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your grace and your mercy. We sang that earlier. Our sins, they are many, but your mercy is more. And Lord, you've given to us the charge, the challenge to spill mercy and grace onto others that you've brought into our lives. And it it isn't just to do with us. It's to do with your name in your world that you are reclaiming through your gospel. Lord, I pray that you would find us soft and shapeable in your hands. Lord, that we would run to you when sinful anger rises up in our hearts, that we would be quick to seek resolution of fractured relationships. And Lord, in doing so, under the power of your spirit, Lord, that you would be glorified in this community through your church. And we pray this, Jesus, in your name. We pray this for your sake, your kingdom's sake.